On today's episode, we're sitting down with Nabil Ayers, president of Beggars Group U.S. and author of My Life in the Sunshine, a remarkable memoir about the search to discover your family and finding yourself along the way. Welcome to an all-new episode of Discologist. sooner than you might have thought, uh, kicking off, and I'm excited about this, uh, the our, our episodes of these, the In Conversation episodes, uh, one thing that you and I talked about, Eduardo, when doing this was the opportunity to talk to more artists, um, mm-hmm. because I think, and I think you agree with me, letting them tell their story is often... You can you can get different versions of that, you know, but th- there's a narrative for sure. But then at some point, there's a that you get to what the person is really thinking about their work. Yeah. Well, in in bringing the show back and kind of reflecting about what it was that we valued and enjoyed the most about it, I know that. Um as you and I were talking late, late one evening in Milwaukee, probably, probably at Bernhardt's or somewhere, uh, or in your, or in your backyard, um, was just the conversations with artists and the, and the fact that, you know, that, um, while we're not always sure that the world needs more of us, the world can benefit from hearing directly from people making cool shit. And a good thing we can do is to give them a chance to talk about it. Yeah. And it does two purposes. It, it gives you like, it gives you like access to these people. It gives you yeah. like so somebody uh, you are like oh my god I can't believe this person is an artist like like Phil Cook is going to be on um, yeah. yeah soon and uh, so if you don't know Phil it gives you access to him and hopefully if we, if we do our jobs right it makes it sound like you now know Phil um, and it's comfortable but also I for me what I love about doing these is it kind of demystifies stuff because part of what we're doing is just saying hey you know these artists are just like you. Um, and maybe you can't do exactly what they're doing, but maybe you'll hear something uh, in a conversation with them that sparks your creativity or decide, makes you like move forward with something you've been wanting to do. It certainly did with me. Like talking to artists all over, yeah. <laughs> over the years, it's finally like, well, shit, I should probably make music. Well, well, sometimes it's really, you know, wise and it's sort of, you know, insight that feels somehow sacred. And sometimes it's really just like down to earth, practical shit. I think I've mentioned this before, but I loved, I think it was the Future Birds interview where you were talking about kind of what motivated them as a band. And I forget who, maybe it was like Kiffy or someone was like, honestly, like it's, it's just like trying to avoid having to get a job for one more summer. Like if we can tour for one more summer, then I don't have to get a job. That's I might re-up right. that interview because that one was hilarious because they called us out for uh, how we reviewed their album. <laughs> they did. They did. And they, and they were right to. They were and right they, to. And they were absolutely right to. But yeah. um, so to kick this off, I am, I am so glad we got to do this. Uh, a book came out by Nabil Ayers called My Life in the Sunshine. Uh, last year and we meant to have him on the show and just, it didn't come together. It did finally come together. Now, uh, if you don't know who Nabil Ayers is, he is the president now of, of beggars USA. Um, he is a, a drummer, a record store owner, uh, a, a philosopher, I think, as you'll find out, he's also Roy Ayers, uh, son, uh, the, the famous, uh, jazz musician and the book, uh, on the surface is about him sort of chasing that relationship a little bit and finding out what it mean, what it meant to him and what yeah, it means if you saw him. any press about the book, it likely focused on that. 
and I think if you if you read the book, you, you know that it's the story is about much more than that. And that was just sort of a hook that a lot of media went with. Yeah, yeah, and and it's about much more than that. And uh, it is a, it is on my short list of books that are an absolute must read uh, if you're a human. Uh, it's just it's just phenomenal work, and uh, I was thrilled that he was willing to give us some time and sit down and talk with us. So uh, he did it from I think it was Iowa. <laughs> he, no, he was in Idaho. He was in Idaho, Idaho. Moscow, he Idaho. Was, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a Saturday morning, and we just had a just had a lovely. It was a lovely chat, man. I had such a great time hanging yeah. out with him virtually. Should people read the book before they hear this? Um. I, you know, we, we, I think we avoid a lot of spoilers. Um, I think, I think if you've, if you've heard about this book and you haven't read it yet, maybe hearing Nabil speaking directly might, might put you over the edge. Um, if you're reading it now, I would say definitely wait and, uh, you know, finish the book and then, and then come back to this. But if you're not sure that you're going to read it yet, I would say the interview will probably if we did our jobs well, I think the interview will, will convince you that you really do want to spend some time inside Nabil's head and learning, you know, about his, just his life experience. Yeah. Yeah. So without further ado, here we have Nabil Ayers talking about his book, My Life in the Sunshine. You writing this book, uh, it, it cannot be overstated. Eduardo just read it. Um, how meaningful this book was to both of us. I mean, I, I remember I read it about six months ago, and it just left me kind of on the floor in a, in a very in a very good way. Right. When when you started out on this journey, did you understand that you were not necessarily writing about yourself? That's a no one's asked that question. That's an interesting question because it's a memoir, right? It's like sort of the most narcissistic thing you can do is write 320 pages about right. yourself. <laughs> but uh, but in my defense, thanks to your question, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely didn't realize that. I might not have realized that until 10 seconds ago when you asked that question. I mean, the, the thing that I get now a lot, I mean, it's called My Life in the Sunshine, which is a lyric from my father's song, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. So people who haven't read it, which is, of course, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, you wrote a book about your father. And usually my kind of snapback is, no, I wrote a book about my mother. And I yeah. often think that it's actually about her. Um, but... But yeah, of course, the go-to is it's really about me. I mean, the number of times I typed the letter I is just like sickening sometimes. And when, when I was looking through the final manuscript and you kind of really just start looking at weird things and your brain goes crazy and so many paragraphs start with the, you know, a capital I, it's like, wow, this is really like, this is me writing about me. But but you're right. I think a lot of it is is not totally about me and is about other people and about bigger picture things that other people also deal with. Well, I was just... I was just saying to Kevin, yeah, no, 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 just, just right, right as you got on, Nabil, I was just saying to Kevin that the whole checking the box conversation, like as, as an immigrant, that's something that, you know, I've struggled with and not, you know, in the, um, I'm, I'm Brazilian, uh, in the nineties, it was Hispanic. Right. And that's not, that describes a language, not, uh, right. ethnicity or geography. And we were actually excluded from like the national Hispanic honor society or whatever. They were like, Brazilians are not, are not part of this group. Oh, wow. Um, and I've had this conversation with sort of like other, you know, middle-class immigrants of like, Hey, is that box for me? Or is that box for people who dealt with like real adversity and who have had concrete setbacks in life? And so your journey to like, I feel like the sort of the constant thread in your story, besides the strength of the women who hold families together and who make, who get shit done, who make mm -hmm. things possible. Right. Is this story of like belonging and of like increasingly finding your place in the world, right? In the sunshine. Yeah. That's, I mean, you just nailed it. <laughs> that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the box thing is so interesting that the, uh, the, the sort of, I mean, you're, you're touching on something that a lot of people haven't talked about, which is, of course, I think a lot of people have had trouble with the box and meaning which race to tick on a box, you know, white, black, whatever. Um, but the sort of almost guilt thing that you just brought up of, of like, well, I mean, technically, of course, I can check black because my father's black. But like, 
am I putting myself in a place with people who've been really disenfranchised because they're black and maybe I shouldn't check that box because it hasn't hurt me in my life the way it has hurt other people and all that stuff becomes just this crazy conversation. There's a point in, in, in the book when you say, uh, why can't my father be a part of the greatness of my life? And that seems to be the point that you it, it turned into it turned into something else. This book turned into something else. You you're you just turned fifty, right? Last year, uh, fifty one a couple of weeks ago, actually. Fifty one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, I turned fifty last year. All right. Um, and, and 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 part yeah, thanks. Um, <laughs> and and part of that turning fifty, and, and let me know if you had the same experience. You cross that line, and it's very it's surreal getting up to it. And then you cross that line, and you feel a little more. Uh, a, a little more sure in your in your decisions about like your who you are yourself, and and mm-hmm. able to move forward a little bit. Yeah. Um. But that question um spoke to me because as someone who's adopted, uh. um, and finding uh finding out my birth mother, so no relationship with her or my father. Wow. Uh, and having a little bit of contact. But then having it be like, oh, you know, no, she doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want to be part of that. Oh, yeah. It's an interesting, like, headspace. How did that, did did that fuck with you, like, (laughs) deeply over your life? Or or is it, like, just sort of simmering in the background? I I guess both. I mean, the, the point you're talking about is, I guess this is probably five or six or seven years ago. So I was in my mid 40s. Uh, I was in Chicago and I think I was just thinking in my head, like everything is so great in my life. I have this incredible job. I'm about to get engaged, about to propose marriage to my now wife, Um, whatever. I'm healthy. My mom, you know, things are so great. But there is this sort of weird father thing that was just kind of sort of hanging over me, but bothering me. You know, it all stemmed from growing up and not knowing him, which was by design. My mother got pregnant on purpose with his permission, knowing he wouldn't be part of our lives. And that's a whole nother longer story. So he didn't leave us. There wasn't a divorce. It wasn't that. And it was all fine until I was in my mid thirties and finally tried to get in touch with him, had this really great lunch where we, I would say, hit it off and like really got along well. And it felt like, wow, nothing in the past even matters. We can just hang out once or twice a year. And this is cool. No one needs anything. No one wants anything. But then after that one time, he just wasn't available again. So that was the first time I started to really feel like, oh, weird. Now I'm actually angry for the first time in my life in my mid-30s. And right. then, So by this time right. I'm in Chicago in my 40s, that was still just nagging at me. And it really was this almost this almost felt spoiled. Or I was like, wow, nine out of 10 things in my life are great. But there's this one thing that just bothers me. And so the question you mentioned, which is why can't he be part of the greatness in my life? It didn't mean... Why can't he actually be part of my life? It meant, why can't, when I think about him, why can't I think positive thoughts? Or why, you know, when I think about him, I would get this like pit in my stomach or I'd get sad. And then that was the only thing in my life at the time that made me feel like that. So that's really what that question was. And and that was absolutely a turning point where I thought, he's not going to help me. And it wasn't so much even about him. It was about that I wanted to know so much more about his side of the family and all these people I was related to. And so I decided to do 23andMe knowing I was not going to get anything else from him and kind of thinking, wow, if I, maybe I can just go around him and figure out more. Right. And, and for people who haven't read the book, over the course of the book, what you find out, and this is the, the for me at least, the, the general theme that I took away of it was the, uh, your ability, yours and like everybody's ability to kind of choose their family. Mm-hmm. You find out this way to accept all that. Did that come from from the journey you were taking of that, where or or were you before? Because, like, you're a musician, right? Mm-hmm. And musicians tend to be like a little more empathetic, and and this is like the, mm-hmm. you build communities as a musician, and you have to because nobody's sticking up for you, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So so was this something that like just came about? while like while you were like researching this or did it just sort of flower it it happened pretty naturally it definitely flowered i mean so i i I did 23 and me 
hoping to learn more about my father's family. And as luck would have it, uh, I think third cousin got in touch pretty quickly via the whatever the website um, saying, you know, we're distant cousins. It's not a huge deal, but I have a heir's family tree you might want to see. And he emailed it to me. And it was this incredible document that's like that my great uncle, who I never knew existed, um, wrote in 1963. And it has like a picture of everyone except for before their pictures. It's like kind of a bad black and white Xerox, but it looks like a drawing of my oldest ancestor who was an enslaved man in uh, Mississippi who was born in 1824. And it's got his whole story and it's got every generation and it's got the actual tree. And I see my father's name on it and his parents' names who I knew and his sisters. And it's the whole thing in one email. It's all just there. And so this is a long story and there's a book about it. But when, when things really opened up was when I tried to research online my father's side of the family and really just reach dead ends, which is very common with enslaved people. There's not a lot of records. Sometimes they don't even have names that exist on record. So I started researching the person who owned the slaves because um, his name was included. And that was pretty easy. And weirdly, there was tons of history on him. And he was a doctor and it was a small town. It wasn't that hard to find. And as I kept sort of dancing around the web, I found this woman named Karen Ayers who is alive and appears to be a descendant of the slave owner. So I email her and we have this incredible dialogue. And she's just, you know, the, this warm, helpful, wonderful person who starts sending me information and photos and everything she knows about the Ayers farm back in the day. And it turns out she's a hobby genealogist. I write about this story for NPR Code Switch and relatives on my father's side read that story get in touch. I never knew they existed. This is my father's sister, who I thought was dead, my aunt. She gets in touch. My first cousins, my father's other sister's daughter, like really the closest relatives you can have other than siblings. Uh, and these people are all incredibly open and accepting. And I'm spending time with them in Los Angeles and we're texting each other on holidays and things. And, and suddenly this is when I realize, like, wow, my father is kind of the only one that was in the way. And actually all the stuff I wanted is here and that this that's really the version of him being part of the greatness in my life the relationship with karen is is really one of the just such an unexpected um incredibly wholesome sweet thing that happens in the story it was really i know kevin and i traded some notes about it too we just thought it was so yeah yeah she's amazing i mean there's so that her emails it's such we've still never spoken that's what's really interesting we email all the time we facebook message we instagram message um but she's such a great emailer. And she was, I mean, I had so much more in the book towards the end. And my editor is like, this is just too many emails. Can you just kind of tell the story? And she was right. But they're just really eloquent and really cool. And they would be really intense. And then they would end, and some of this is in there. And then it would end with like, my husband just made a pizza. He likes mushrooms and feta on his. Mine, ha you know, like it's really like interesting. <laughs> Here is a picture of the documents from the slave farm. I'm going to go have some pizza. Hope you're great. <laughs> like these really sort of <laughs> intense and fun emails at the same time is great. Well, well, so in that moment, I'm really curious, you write about that moment in the cemetery uh, where um, you realize that, you know, not only have you come to terms with the fact that your, your dad is sort of your biological dad is sort of an outlier, but his dad was kind of a weird guy too. Um, <laughs> and that, that kind of set me off on this spiral of like, yeah, man, dads are, dads are weird. Um, but, but also, but also just this, this sense that, you know, um, there's that, there's a great line by Francis Quinlan from Hopalong about how it's strange to be shaped by strange men. And I think there's, there's a point where like, you realize that as a person, you're just like, oh man, there's like a, there's a ladder here and I'm just the next rung on it. But you also say that you were committed in that moment to like, to, to stop the cycle or to find a different way. Right. I'm curious about yeah. kind of that, that moment and what that looks like for you. Yeah, I mean, my aunt, Michelle, who I talked about, um, took me to the cemetery in Los Angeles where her parents, my grandparents, are buried, who I never knew, never met. Um, and it was incredible. And we had this great moment where we stood and she talked to my grandmother and she said, Grandma, this is Nabil. He's a really sweet young man, like this really like touching, heartfelt introduction. And then and then she said, OK, ready? And I said, what about Grandpa? <laughs> and she said, oh, he doesn't care. And she just kept talking. We were there standing <laughs> over the gravestone. <laughs> and I think I did just laugh and so much just rushed into my head. And that, that whole chapter I wrote like an hour after that meeting because I was like, I have to just get this all out. It just happened. This was so intense. And so it's all that's all really close to just right after it happened. But um, but yeah, I think I realized the, the big realization then was the fact that my father 
doesn't get back to me or doesn't want to spend time with me or doesn't return my phone calls isn't necessarily an active thing. Maybe he just doesn't care, I think is the line I said in the thing. He's not saying like, I'm not going to get in touch with this person. What does he want from me? Maybe it just goes right by him. It's not even, it's not personal. It's not deliberate. Um, And I mean, whatever, there still might be problems with that, but it's not as... It's not as bad as I think it is. Maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he got that from his father, whose daughter just told me he doesn't care. (laughs) Not even enough for a quick intro (laughs) at the gravestone. So I really kind of put that all together and thought maybe that, you know, the sort of the men above me on my father's side are uh, are just kind of like that. But my mother is the opposite of that. And obviously I grew up with her and still close with her. And so the thinking really was, well, I don't need to carry that forward. I can carry the other side of the family forward. Yeah, the, I think the idea that that behaviors like that don't necessarily have to be malevolent mm-hmm. isn't isn't as well understood uh, by a lot of people. You know, it, right. if you come from like a perfect, if you come from a perfect family, you're like, this is just the way it should be. Right. But there, there's no. But then you start to look outside, and as soon as you like, if you know somebody. You know, it, like in the 80s, everybody was getting divorced. Mm-hmm. It was weird. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> right. what do you mean? What is going on here? Um, and then everybody with all the kids were traumatized by Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> we're definitely you know the same what I'm age. Talking about yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but 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 it, it is refreshing to see like you address that directly um, and just say, you know, it, and like you said, it is important, but that's it, there's there's ways around it is the wrong way to to say that i think but right. it's just like it doesn't need to completely define uh who you are and what you're trying to do does that come from just time or like your relationship to the baha'i faith oh interesting i mean the baha'i faith is such an interesting one for me because it's not you know my my name nabil is a baha'i name that my mother got from a book she and my uncle her younger brother were raised jewish in Long Island and definitely didn't reject Judaism, but when they were 18-ish and moved to New York City, they just sort of really embraced the Baha'i faith, which at the time was like this, you know, this is like 1970, like real open, welcoming, diverse, international, everyone is welcome vibe, which fits them both so much. So they just kind of jumped in Um, and it is a religion, but it's not, you know, I don't know a ton about it, so I don't want to get it wrong, but you certainly don't go through any kind of ritual to become a member. You kind of, if you want to join, you can join. And it's all about equality. And I mean, it's, I love it. It's fantastic. And I, it was a big part of my childhood. We went to a lot of events. I have incredible memories of just really fun picnics and, and things like that. Um, and more than anything, just like going to these parties and these potlucks and things that were just like truly such a diverse group of people young people, old people, people of so many different races. Um, and it definitely was a huge part of my childhood and then didn't return until actually that same scene we are just talking about where I was in Chicago and went to the Baha'i Temple, which I'd never been to, and it just felt like my childhood. And even the people that were there and the fact that this book that I'm named after, Nabil's Narrative, there were like a stack of them on the shelf, which was wild because I'd never seen it since I was a kid. So there's definitely a connection to it, and I do feel like it's part of me. I almost do feel bad sometimes claiming, like, well, that's from my Baha'i background because, you know, I don't participate in anything these days. I'm not sure that I know any Baha'is, but I'm almost more of just, like, a fan and an admirer and someone who feels it still, but but I definitely, I can't claim to really be part of it right now. Right, right. Now, you know, talking about your mother... uh, you get the sense from the book that she basically gave you pretty much everything you are. <laughs> like <Right. laughs> you set the template for like who you are as a person. Like if we were talking to her right now, it'd be like very hard to distinguish between two. Is that the case? Is that the case? That's 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 a funny way to think about it. I suppose so. so yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, her and my uncle, who are very similar in most ways, but also very different. But he, you know, he was a huge part of my life too. Um, yeah, I th- that, that's funny though. If you could distinguish, <laughs> I'm trying to think what she would do differently if she were here in the situation. Right now. <laughs> she, I mean, she would be talking more. I assure you, <laughs> we'd be on question number two right now. Yeah, Sp- speaking of your uncle, uh, Alan Brofman. So you, you, you know, we haven't touched on your your actually career in the sure. music industry and how mm-hmm. you've gone how you've gone from being a drummer 
um, to now you're a president of Beggars U.S. or yeah, Total? U.S. Yeah, U.S. Just U.S. Um, just U.S. Just the biggest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's Canada. So. There's Canada. Yes. Um, how did it feel when you reissued your your uncle's album? Like, what what was that? What when, when you got to that point? And I assume you're in the middle of all this, right? Mm-hmm. You're in the middle of like figuring, like right in the middle of all this. And yeah. then it's like, you know what? This person was a de facto father to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do this guy a solid. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it's so directly related to the book and to everything. At the time, there wasn't, the idea of a book probably didn't exist. This is probably 2016 when I first had the idea. What happened was, so my uncle, Alan Brofman, released this incredible free jazz record called Valley of Search in 1975. This, you know, really rough live recording that was done in the loft on Canal Street and released on this incredible label, India Navigation. And then it was gone. And he did lots of other stuff. He's always been a musician, but joined rock bands, like didn't keep his career going he was more of a it still is sort of more of a hired saxophone player and toured in the psychedelic furs and carla blaze band and all these amazing things and uh and i'm still really close to alan and in 2016 he played in new york with cooper moore who's the pianist in that album they're like lifelong friends and i went to the show and just posted some clips on instagram or facebook or something and uh and was really surprised all these music nerds that i know and i know a lot of music nerds popped up and they're like whoa that's your uncle or you know i know that record and i was like what are you talking about this is like a private press record that i have a copy of no one knows this and i started digging around and it was like a hundred dollars on discogs and there te- there's a terrible rip on youtube with ten thousand plays on it which just blew my mind which obviously isn't an insane youtube number but it's a lot for a a jazz record from 1975 nobody knew (laughs) right so and it's and the the thing that really got me more than anything was that the rip sounded so terrible and i was like oh my god (laughs) ten thousand plays of this thing that sounds so bad this is what people think this album is this is the only way to hear it so i talked to alan about reissuing it that honestly that was the impetus more than like i want to do something for my uncle it was like people deserve to hear this at least in the way that it was intended so he didn't have the original tapes, but he had some sealed LPs, which was kind of incredible. So got this mastering guy, Joe Lambert, to remaster it from the record and did a great job. I think the repress actually sounds better. But the bigger picture thing is that I, that's when I was starting to write a lot. And I was talking to Alan a lot. I was asking about photos. He was telling me stories. And uh, and my writing brain was like, wow, I should really be writing about this while I'm doing this because this is such an interesting personal project that relates to everything. And um. And the other thing that was really interesting about it, because I, I run a big record company in my real life, and when I put out records on my own small label, I'll often hire a publicist because it's just like a lot of work that you need someone who has those relationships who can help you get reviews and get those kinds of things. But for this, for two reasons, I thought this is not going to make money, so I can't spend money on this. This is definitely a money loser. This is just a labor of love. And the other part was like, no publicist can really tell this story. I was literally there. There's a song named after me on the record. It's my uncle. I should just do this. And it's going to, I'm going to give myself a year and do the really slow build and email people I know one by one and do this. And so I really got super deep into it. And, uh, and it did really well, which was really fun. I mean, so the craziest part of it was that I got to write a New York Times piece about it. And it almost went away because the editor called me at the last minute after they'd accepted it. And he was like, wait a minute, this is your uncle's record that you're releasing as a commercial thing that you sell and you're writing about it. And I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it had to go through the ethics committee and all this stuff. And we ended up changing it. So it never says... The record, it never talks about a product. It says the recording. There's all this like really specific language. But anyway, um, it was incredible. He played this sold out show in New York. And like, and so much of that, I mean, a big part of that New York Times piece ended up being kind of some chapters of the book. But that really opened up all these conversations with my uncle. All these photos came from that. A lot of the stuff that is the early parts of the book, I think, only exists because of that whole reissue process. Yeah, it's funny. Like when I mentioned the book to uh any of my jazz head friends they, they were they're like oh that's the guy who reissued the valley of search album. <laughs> no they don't go to Roy Ayers, they go to the obscure <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well i mean to, to that, that point this is a, you know everybody has holes in in their history i when i got this pitch email about the book and and a copy of the book mm-hmm. 
uh, I actually didn't know who your father was. Wow, really? Uh, right. And it's it's really there. And Eduardo can vouch for this. I have just, just these wild holes in my in my yeah. history with music. But it was just like, I knew the song. Once I put it right, on, Right, of like, course. That, oh, that's yeah. the funny I, thing. At the I, University of Idaho I, yesterday, I was like, does anyone know who Roy Ayers is? And, no, and then I played the song. And, of course, like, you know, yeah. 90% <laughs> of the hands go up. <laughs> yeah. But it, but it was it was literally like, huh. And, and so I don't even know why I was... Because, uh, I mean, you know, with publicity, uh, mm -hmm. you get hundreds of emails and stuff. Yeah. But why why you pick one, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I did, and I was just like, you know what? This sounds, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Yep. But, it, but, it, but it was wild to then go find out about your dad. And I waited until I finished the book. Oh, wow. So I, I, I wanted to see it, like, strictly from your side, uh, your perspective of things. And then I was like, okay. That's the, that's so interesting. What, what I'm coming up against now is I, I think it's the opposite there are people who are super fans of his who are not good friends of mine but people i know or people i'm one step from some people who are very famous who i've wanted to get involved in the book somehow be on their podcast give them a copy and some of those people will not touch it and i, and I think it's it's the like i don't want to read this i don't want to get involved because i'm too big of a fan and i don't want anything to get ruined and to me, the funny thing is like, but actually, I don't think it'll ruin it. I think he actually comes out of the book in pretty good shape. <laughs> but you know, I can't have that conversation with people. But uh, it's funny to hear your side. That's the opposite of like wanting to read it before you learn about his music. Right, 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 right. Yeah, because like you said, you, you don't you don't demonize him at all. Right. You, you contextualize it in a, in a mature, actually a, a more adult way than you see in a lot of writing, reporting, fiction or nonfiction. You, you just say. This is what it is. Right. And I've had people get mad. I've had people have been upset with me about that. Not people who know him, but I think a lot of it is, I mean, of course, people bring their own shit to everything. And so a lot of it is maybe people with, they think, similar father situations, but obviously not exactly the same situation. Being like, you let him off too easy. What? This is, you know, why didn't you, why aren't you mad? Like <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's like, are you mad at your father? It sounds like maybe you are. <laughs> And, and that and that and that's 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 what I think. I think some of that might have to do with the fame thing that he's famous, and mm -hmm. so therefore it should be somehow different. Right. It's not a remarkable situation. Right. Like your your story, your journey is actually quite remarkable. Uh, the, the very details of it, but I think you could find like other people that are so similar to your story. Mm -hmm. They just didn't happen to be Roy Ayer's son, or and now run you know beggars group. Right. You know? <laughs> Right. So anything negative you can blame on the situation. Right. 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 How does we, we know from the book what your mother feels about the situation? How did uh, Alan feel about it? About about the situation? And how do you feel about the book? About the book. Yeah. Uh, he, so so nobody saw it until it was like, you know, really like third draft, like super close to, to done, because especially with my mother, I didn't want to I didn't want her to read anything that might change because. I know her very well. And she would say, I can't believe you took that part out. I love that part. Like that kind of thing. I didn't want to ever have to deal with that for the rest of our lives. <laughs> so I was really careful to be like, okay, this is so close. It just needs to be copy edited. Now give me, a, you know, we built in a couple of weeks to have at that point. That's when it goes to family and people like that. And um, Alan loved it. I mean, he was, I remember talking to him on the phone. I remember where I was walking in Prospect Park in, in Brooklyn. Um, I mean, he was the first one I remember in that conversation. He said, you know, if Roy would ever read this, I think he'd be really happy with it, which was interesting. Um, but, yeah, he had nothing but good things to say. And, and he's in with the whole situation being what it was. He was just like he accepted it the way your mother did, the way you did. He did. Yeah. I mean, he was literally there, <laughs> really literally there. And I, I mean, it was very awkward interviewing both my mother and my uncle about the night my mother got pregnant, which they both remember really well. And what's, what's so wild is, I mean, neither of them, I mean, they're, what, 72 and 74 or something like that right now. Neither of them has ever drank or done drugs or anything. They're both, you know, in good shape. My uncle's a second-degree <laughs> black belt in Aikido who's a mountain ultra-marathon runner. It's insane. So <laughs> right. their memories are just remarkable, really crazy. And all yeah. my mother's memories are tied to what she was wearing at the time. So she'll be like, yeah, it was April 26th. We left the Baha'i Center and I was wearing this and I said, it's time to go to Roy's place. It's around the corner and tonight's the night I'm going to get pregnant. Like she has stories like that. It's really crazy. And my uncle, his isn't as good, but he backs everything up, which is just good when you can have somebody say, yep, that's exactly how it happened. So, so your mom brings up, you know, she 
I'm I'm just sort of processing this now. Like she, you know, she she decides to have you. Um, you know, you guys move to Amherst and then eventually, right, eventually out to Salt Lake, which mm-hmm. which can't have been an easy thing to, <laughs> to kind of figure out. All right. She she broaches the topic with you of sort of like, hey, wouldn't it be great to change our names? Like, wouldn't it be better to have like a different... Or just mine. Yeah. 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 What does she know about like the world that we don't? Like, she just seems so <laughs> autonomous and so confident and so able to make these big decisions. That's like, how is that possible? Question. I know that's the funny thing because, I mean, on paper... It all sounds so terrible and so ready for disaster. The whole, my life, the whole thing, it really doesn't work. <laughs> um, but she made it work and that's the incredible thing. But what, what does she know? I mean, she's very intuitive. I mean, I knew her parents, my grandparents, well into my 20s. They were incredible people, really warm, really interesting, really smart. I mean, but I don't, I have no idea. I think she's just got really great instincts and an incredible gut and is very protective and smart and and really to a degree where i mean you know in a way sacrificed what a lot of people would argue are her best years you know her 20s and 30s were completely devoted to raising me that was it that's what she did although, although one another way to look at it is that she didn't sacrifice anything because that was her goal right exactly she, she did exactly she, what you know, wanted she to said and, it, and she, did it well. This is exactly what I want to yeah. do, and, and 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 it turned out turned out well. Shifting gears a little bit, um, your career in music uh, from the the bottom in quotes to to the top. <laughs> now, in a different side of it, uh, there's a lot in this book where you seem to mark time by the music that you are consuming. Yeah. How much do you, as uh, a musician and now a, an executive? Like, how much do you identify points in your life and identify songs as sort of like little soundtracks to those moments? I mean, like a hundred percent. It's almost like when I was just right. talking about my mother knowing about dates and times and places based on what she was wearing that day. It's the same exact thing. And I never actually thought about it in those terms, but it's very much, I mean, writing the book, so many memories came back because I would just think like, oh, okay, when we moved to Salt Lake that summer, what was that like? Well, let's just put on Survivor, Eye of the Tiger, Human League, Don't You Want Me Baby, Steve Miller, Abracadabra, all the songs that were on the radio that summer, and stuff just started coming back. It's crazy. And and I mean, just the fact that it's so easy to do that now is was really helpful. My, my, my partner jokes, or everybody knows me jokes, that I listen to too much 80s music. <laughs> but like, I, I don't do it. I don't do it ironically, because my... My recollection was like, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia, mm-hmm. and we had one radio station because Falwell was there, and it wow. was good though. Uh-huh. And so you could hear like like Purple Rain debuted like the day it wasn't like a month or two later. Oh wow! Later for us to hear it, yeah. So so we would sit out on the street and like hear these things, and so I can mark like all this time and all this development mm-hmm. with that. And when I hear it, it's not necessarily a. Like, oh man, I love this song. It's more of a like, man, that's a part of me. Yeah, I know exactly what and, you mean. And like I, this. Yeah, and I and I find it interesting that you were in a bunch of bands in the '90s, and the '90s isn't like that for mm. me. But for you, it it very clearly is. Like you name check Nirvana, Jane's oh, yeah. Addiction, right? Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Don't don't forget yeah. Mr. Bungle. Okay, no more. Those <laughs> yeah. are my those are my two biggies. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mr. Bungle. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess in the 80s for me, definitely. So that was high school in Salt Lake City. So that was definitely more the radio than anything. MTV. I, I don't think we had cable later in high school. So the 80s, the 80s was really the radio and then friends buying CDs. So that, those are kind of the ways I heard about music then. And so I think that's the, the 80s thing to me is if radio is the influence, you get that repetition. So that's why those songs get ingrained in you in that way, whether it's Purple Rain or it's Steve Miller, Abracadabra, whether you like it or not, if you were hearing that song 10 times a week for a year, it's just there. And if you were only listening to one there's radio no, station, There's no way you're, you're liking Invisible Touch otherwise. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and I love that, though, but there's no way. The second you say that, I can see the green swirly cover. <laughs> um, but then the 90s, at least for me, was not really about radio. That's when I, well, I went to college in 89, so that was more, well, college radio, KUPS, but that wasn't repetition, repetition at all. That was, you know, different kids doing their shows playing whatever they wanted but what college for me and what was so exciting about it was that was my relatively small school like 2800 kids all in the same place all with their own record collections at a time when scenes were still really localized pre-internet so everyone's showing up with their you know i'm from san francisco here are my bands 
I'm from New Jersey. Here are my bands. And learning about music that way, like hand to hand from people who sort of had experienced it and were all bringing it to the same place. That was fascinating for me. Yeah, for sure. So you ran Sonic Boom Records. You, I mean, you, you started Sonic Yeah, Boom with a partner, Records. Jason. Yep. Um, now that you are, you, you, you go from musician, you were a musician during that period, but to like sort of selling it, responsible for the product, to now you're, you're the guy who like green lights shit. Not, but not like, totally. That, that's the funny thing. Um, so I ran, I was, I was the GM of 4AD for 13 years, which is one of the five beggars labels along with Matador XL, Rough Trade and Young. And that was more that. I wasn't an A&R person, but I was really running the campaigns and working with the artists and their managers and all the different departments in our office, press, radio, marketing, etc. And a lot with the UK because everything's still based there, even if it's an American band. 4AD is headquartered in London. But then I moved into this role just about a year ago as president of Beggars, which is the bigger company. So the funny thing now is that I'm actually, it, it's a bit more of a business role. It's a lot of finance. It's a lot of people and HR and hiring. And it's really, I, I almost explain it to people sometimes, which is not very sexy, but I would say sometimes I don't work for a label as much as I used to. I work for the company that makes sure the label has the resources that it needs. So I'm I'm less working directly with bands. I'm not in the studio hearing mixes as much. And I really do miss a lot of that stuff. But at the same time, I get to work across all five labels and learn so much more about the international business and about all this stuff I wasn't doing before. So it's, it's been a good trade off after 13 years. So going back to the 4AD stuff, though, then my question was was kind of as somebody who the base of what what your mode if you get into any of these things is communication mm -hmm. do you feel what do you feel is the difference between that role say at 4ad versus the role of of actually doing the stuff or, or selling the stuff in a store like somebody walks in like here you know this record you have to hear it or is there a difference to you was it just organic over the years there's like these different levels so at 4ad i was so close to eight nine ten records a year and you know would hear the early mixes, hear the, see the early versions of the artwork, talk to the artists, learn, you know, sometimes go to the studio, like really knew so much that by the time the album existed, I would have such an opinion of it. And sometimes it was like, God, this is so good. Sometimes it'd be like, wow, I really wish they'd gone with the other mix of this song or the alternate cover was better. Like, you know, those kinds of things stick in your head when you're involved in those processes. So the, the sort of fun thing about the store job, which obviously I had before that was, in a way, not knowing all of that was sort of fun because you just get the final thing and assume this is what the artist wanted to convey. Here it is. I, I never heard the 10 versions that came before this or I never saw the different covers and you can just choose what you like. And that's what was really fun about a record store is you have all the records and you can say, I really like this weird record. I'm going to play it in the store. I'm going to tell people who I know or who trust my taste about it. That, that was the really fun thing and i think that's still a lot of why independent record stores are thriving right now i mean of course there's the vinyl resurgence but you can get vinyl anywhere but it's still that experience of walking into a place and talking to somebody who knows something you don't or has similar taste and can talk to you about it and that's you know i mean there are versions online but if you're lucky enough to have a store like that it's a fun experience there, there are three stores like that within walking distance from where i am at in milwaukee wow wow it's Wait, a, it's is Atomic insane. still there? It's insane. No. I think they I closed. Think. Okay. I think Atomic closed. What, what we've got Rushmore. We've got uh, Acme Records. Uh, there's one more that I haven't been to. And then we've got Lily. But Exclusive Company was the big right. one. Wow, in walking in distance. Wisconsin. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Down in Bayview. The, um, so did it, do you prefer one role? As, like, do you prefer like sitting and being like sort of advising people like i'm making this and and you're like oh this album cover should maybe be this maybe this. right right let's versus, put a sticker on it versus doing <laughs> doing your own thing like oh i made this mm -hmm. Me meaning as a, like, in a band you, version yeah in a band yeah hmm it's it's tough because in bands i was always the drummer which is you know it's not the person writing the songs it's not the person singing the songs it's almost i mean of course i was part of the process and all the bands I was in, but someone would introduce an idea and I would contribute to it. But it, it, it wasn't, it was never completely my thing. And so 
for that reason, I mean, I loved it and that was fun, but I think I prefer the label thing because in a weird way, I actually feel more involved. But the thing that's so similar to the to both things in a way is the book, which I really didn't realize would feel so much like being in a band, except I'm the only person <laughs> and not, you know, I'm the singer and I'm the songwriter. And especially at these book events, it's like, oh, God, if I drop a stick, it's just me. <laughs> no one's, no one's going to not notice. Yeah. So I was just thinking too, just kind of reflecting on the on the distance from from you know uh, from record store clerk to to your perch now, and I was thinking about the incident you write about um, at Sonic Boom, I think, where there was uh, a customer who thought he was being mistreated by someone who worked there, and sort mm-hmm. of and and I'm I'm kind of reflecting on how you write about being really uncomfortable in that in that moment of sort of trying to kind of bridge these two worlds so you know an employee that you know is not racist someone who feels that they're being singled out mm-hmm. because of their race and i'm thinking about how far you've gone from being uncomfortable in that moment to now being able to write about and address kind of structural systemic issues right why do all the white people at the label work on rock right why do the people right. of color work on art like those kinds of things yeah. blackout all these all these really important things can you can you can you talk a little bit about what that journey is? Because it seems to me that you've gone from having that initial moment of feeling like, am I the right person to do this? Mm-hmm. To maybe looking around and being like, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this chair. I must be the right person to do yeah. this. So let me start talking about this. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the incident you talk about is when I was at Sonic Boom and there's a customer, I'd heard some kind of altercation and he was, I'm not sure what race, but a non-white man who who didn't get a discount and said, therefore, the clerk was being racist. He always gets a discount at the store. But the whole thing was like, we have this very loose discount policy. Like if if she didn't know you, there's no, you know, there's not a card or anything. So so I took him outside. But I remember saying to him, look at me. You think this doesn't happen to me, too? Or something like that. And feeling so weird and so guilty because what I did, because it wasn't true, didn't happen to me, or at least not very often. But what I was trying to do was diffuse the situation and calm the guy down and you know have this scene end and it did and it worked and it all calmed down it was fine but i thought about it afterwards and i was just like wow that's so weird that i said that that my natural go-to was to sort of lie just to kind of get through it um but to now i mean the funny thing is moving from the 4ad job i mean i was very senior there but i would still you know there was still beggars which is above and really deals with hr and hiring and all that kind of stuff and i would say things like to the people who ran beggars then like you guys need to do this or i'd talk to colleagues and say they need to do this and suddenly i am they now <laughs> as the president and and so when there's things that i think about it's like oh wow i i am in a unique position to actually try to make change not necessarily i mean and, and i think of it more as i mean beggars is relatively small there's about 70 people in the u.s um but i think about more sort of industry-wide things and how to sort of how to help whatever the whole the whole business change and the the thing that you mentioned is so interesting i think that was from the new york times thing i wrote when i interviewed ed Eckstein, who was the first ever black president of a major label he ran mercury in the 80s when i was in the lemons and i later interviewed him um but we were talking about how some of the major labels have you know incredibly diverse staff but when you really break it down it's like yeah there are 200 people who are all white who work on the rock music and 200 people who are black who work on the r&b and the hip-hop and i'm definitely exaggerating and throwing it out there for effect but my understanding definitely from some friends who work at those companies is that's sort of the the layout and in a way it's really segregated and feels quite strange to work there and that's you know that's a really hard thing to bridge because i do also buy the sort of specially i mean i've heard a lot of black musicians say i want people who look like me working on my music and so how do you reconcile those two things is it you know there's a whole section in your book where you talk about touring mm-hmm. um, as a black man in in the south and uh we know just from like recent events i mean really recent like tyree nichols like it is not getting better yeah <laughs> to put to put it mildly as i sit in my hotel room in northern idaho Right, right. Um, but do you see a path for at least in the in the entertainment music industry to maybe help facilitate healing up that or healing is the wrong word. It's like it just it shouldn't it shouldn't exist in the first place. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That that they, and so like just making sure we can get to a society where it just 
doesn't, maybe. Yeah, I mean, society is a harder path, but maybe this applies to every field. But I was on a panel, a, a diversity and music panel of some sort a few months ago. And the thing that I said, which was scary because it applied to me, too, but it was, you know, it was a lot of white people in the room saying, how do we how do we change this? We want to hire more employees of color, more women to more diversify our staffs. And the thing which I do think is the answer is, you know, everyone will say that. And this applies to all businesses. But are are you willing to be the guinea pig? I mean, do you if you really mean that, are you willing to hire somebody for the job who maybe is less experienced or less able to do the job in the traditional sense that you need the job done? You have this person who's done that exact job for five years, who's white. You have this person who's not, maybe who's never done the job, but has been an intern or something, has less experience. So obviously the other person's the person to hire. But if you want to make that change and you want to be part of it, why don't you hire that person and make them into somebody who is hireable somewhere else in two years, add to the job pool. And are you willing to sort of risk (laughs) your company's business in a sense? And if you're not, that makes sense. But if you're not, you're also keeping everything the same and it was and i'm not necessarily saying everyone should do that but i just wanted to say it in this big room full of people because i think it's true if otherwise it just stays the same it's like yeah yeah we really tried but this guy just had so much more experience so we hired him it's like great take down the black lives matter sign though yeah yeah exactly um can that bleed into the type of art that's being created I mean, there, there, there are cultural differences between art, uh, clearly, um, mm-hmm. and people have their preferences. So you, you can't, like, account for, like, general audience, like, preference. Right. But, but there's the old, uh, you know, DIY belief that, you know, if you just put, like, this noise rock album in front of somebody, <laughs> they'll like it. And the reason, the reason they don't like it is because they just aren't exposed to it. Right, right. Um, you know, it is because I, I don't think there's necessarily a better... There, there's not you can't point to one like culture and be like their art is better than this. I think it's all it all works has to work together. Yeah. But if you can maybe saturate a certain type of art, right. you know, you know um, I mean, do you, do you think that's that's viable or do you think that that's just not given what we know about like because from the business side, from consumers, like what you see that data, you see what people are consuming. Meaning, like, are we talking about? race still or are we talking about just weird music getting in front of people well, well, <laughs> both. well we're talking well, yeah we're, we're both both yeah. race race uh you know it's like um the the big push in nashville right now uh you know black broadway mm-hmm. um stuff you know that is something that i would have never thought existed right growing up mm-hmm. right and it is changing um what people think wow is is that viable like can we do that across all sectors of music right i mean maybe music is so weird because i think a lot of people don't want to separate the sort of people who work on music people at record companies and the people who make the music and the people who work on music have never had a problem exploiting the people who make the music no matter what race they are as long as someone's going to buy it so i mean there have been successful well successful in different levels but black musicians who audiences have loved for decades that it's you know that's not that's not a thing maybe the deals are worse maybe they're treated worse i don't know a lot of that stuff you hear those things but but you know it's one thing to have a black roster it's another thing to have black employees and i think that's the big shift that needs to happen and now again going to the publishing thing i went to a diversity and book publishing thing recently where and i know a lot less about book publishing but it almost sounded like the opposite there where it was like book publishing is notoriously white and authors are notoriously white too and so a lot of that panel is about how do we diversify the actual writers and the people who are writing the books which kind of blew me away because in my head i was like well i mean the music business has always been great at exploiting right you know musicians right, of any race. Right. that's not that's not a problem if, they, if people like the song and they can sell it <laughs> it's fine <laughs> right right well, I think one thing that that sort of gets missed in some of the diversity, um, some of the DEI conversations, which are which are you know often important and good things. I'm not sort of putting them down, but I think I think the the fact that um, you know youth engagement is also DEI engagement by definition. I mean, I can sort of I can sort of track the white the whiteness of an audience at a gig that I'm at based on the median age, right? Oh, interesting. Um, and 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 generally, like the younger and kind of fresher the band 
the more I'm going to see people who are not white, the Mm -hmm. more non-binary folks I'm going to see, the more, you know, it's just so, so it just seems to me that like youth is inextricably linked to diversity and rather than trying to diversify people at a certain tier, the question is just how do we get new people in? Because if we're getting the youth in, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, every generation of Americans is more diverse than the generation that preceded it, yeah. right? So part of the question is like, how do we get younger people to the table too? Yeah, that makes sense. I do think they're the coming. I mean, it depends what the table is. They might not be buying the records the way they used to, but they're streaming or TikToking or going to shows, or, you know, consuming in some way. But I think you're totally right. I haven't thought about it in those terms. The younger, the younger the audience, the more diverse. And, and it's still the thing where, and this has always been a thing, but I think, you know, any show you go to, you see a lot of people who look like they're trying to look like the people on stage, whether that just means wearing the clothes or the haircut, you know, there's something. And so th- that's always interesting, the sort of identification with the person that that you admire that's up there. And so the more diverse the group on stage, that also is often you can really see that reflected in the audience these days, or at least I can in New York. Yeah, and, and I've found as like a 50 year old white dude who grew up in the south like i'm more drawn to like like you said the diversity on the stage right you know like i and and i tend to not put on like and we have the, it's in our about section like if you're four white dudes who <laughs> and, and i'm sorry about this but if you're four white dudes who, who sound like the national we're probably not gonna like report on you because... i mean they're five piece so four people can do it I mean. well- <laughs> Be pretty good. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Um, but 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 it is it is just like uh, you know from the perspective of seeing like what is pitched to us um, that it's overwhelmingly that, hmm. um, and, and it's digging through that stuff to find stuff that isn't and and some stuff you know it, it, some stuff we we will like it's just undeniably so there's stuff that is undeniably good. It, it ticks our boxes, and we and we're like we we're gonna pay attention to it, but um, but that you know, but that's like your I, I mean that that's you guys doing your small part, and I think if everybody were to think in those terms and even think like well whatever I have a podcast I have an anything how can I work to make it just even a little bit more interesting how can I try harder to do that if everyone who ostensibly cares were to even make those kinds of steps I think we'd get there faster if there is a there. Uh, to flip it back to the book, people doing their parts, taking the lessons from your your book about chosen family, about uh, self-actualization and stuff. Do, do you, now that you've written the book, now that it's out, do you, do, you, do you see it as a possible tool for people to use for that? You know, I don't, but I think people do because I've been doing tons of book tour events and there's, you know, there's always questions at the end and and I'll, yeah i mean yes i've had people come up to me and say uh, you know i read this part and this really changed how i thought about something and that that is wild because that was i i love that and that makes me really happy but that certainly wasn't the goal the goal was really just i think the goal is to tell the story and maybe to to offload a bunch of stuff that's been in my head for 50 years and this is in a way an easier way to do it than talking to my friends <laughs> strangely so but uh you know it's certainly not a self-help book but if people take away anything like that i love it and i'm happy to talk about it it's it's exciting yeah i think i think our just people in general our experiences you know i, I said this earlier are more you are more alike than they are different a lot mm-hmm. of times but sometimes sometimes we need somebody to point it out um and it's not intentional like you said you wrote this you wrote this for you mm-hmm. um and and in doing that though like the act of sharing something like this is at 50 is something i find confusing that more people don't do that right like now now it makes perfect sense to me i'm like yeah we're, we're gonna right you know you we, we talk on mics hindsight yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, now it makes perfect sense. And I'm like, oh, man, if I'd just been doing this in my 30s, like, <laughs> you know, just being like, but uh, but I think the quicker stuff like this book can help people get there, like, the, and I'm not exaggerating this, I think it makes the world a better place. Um, 
is, is my is my assessment of, of your work. Thank uh, you. I'll put that on the sticker on the next pressing. Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, step aside, Michelle Zauner. We've got we've got we've got we've got a Kevin Hill blurb coming your way. Uh, but 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 it's it's legitimately it's it's a, it's a powerful work. I think that everybody should read. I think uh, especially people who come from non traditional families. Uh, I, I think you know you're always going to. I get from this the the part of the greatness in my life thing that you're past that now, right? Yeah, but but it is always like there's always just like you know. But no, I mean, I get asked like, at every single book event. Um, people ask if, if my father knows about the book or if he's read it, and my answer is I don't know. I'm not in touch with him. I truly don't know. I kind of assume he at least knows about it. And then the next part of the question is, uh, you know, what would you do if he called you? A lot of people ask that. And I think uh, it's not something I want. I don't think I would feel great. And I think I think writing the book and now still doing this and talking about it is kind of that that was the thing. And there's nothing else really necessary. And And I think people are surprised when I say that I would be surprised if he reached out or if I found out that he read it. This, th- What's happening right now, where I don't know if he's heard it or read it and I haven't heard from him, that is what I expected. But that surprises people when I tell them that. They think that it's almost written with the hope that he will get in touch, which it wasn't. Well, a lot of, a lot of your reluctance um, and the ambivalence you feel toward him in the book, you talk about this sort of fear of being vulnerable and mm-hmm. the feeling, this sort of like deep like regret or shame that you have right after you sort of put yourself out there. Right. And in some ways, this book is the ultimate vulnerable thing, but it also is the ultimate like self-contained. I'm good. I'm not looking for anything with this book. I'm right. sort of telling and I'm right. I'm, I'm claiming I'm not asking anymore. Right. And it's, it is weird. I'm getting really <laughs> deep into it now, but... I mean, one of my biggest fears is that friends, people I've been friends with for 30 years, I've never talked about this stuff with, that they would be pissed at me and say, we've been, I thought we were best friends. You've never talked about any of this and it's all been fine. But, um, but in a weird way, it's honestly been easier to spend four years writing this and just throw it all out there and then go talk about it. And now this, this is fun. I can sit here for an hour and talk about it and answer questions and keep going around to different towns because the version that I want exists and now I can talk about that. Whereas before I had to start from scratch. I didn't like, I, I weirdly have a base now. Like I have a stance and if, if you want to know it, you can go find out about it. It's, it's very, it's a very strange process, but it's, it was almost a somehow actually a less vulnerable version, but still vulnerable. You contextualize it the way you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there, there, like, there's stuff you share with your wife about that, and you know your family that you don't share with other people. Right. And that, I mean, that's that's what that's life. Yeah. Exactly. Um, last question: Who's playing you in the movie version of this? <laughs> my, my joke is always The Rock, um, but there's <laughs> not Dwayne after the, Black Adam, sir. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There's a. It depends on the era. Then the other, my other go-to, which is a real thing. There's this. Uh, this girl who's maybe, I don't know, she might be like 12 years old now. She's an Instagram drummer named Nandi Bushnell, who's British. Nandi Bushnell, She's yeah. played with the Foo Fighters, but she's biracial, kid drummer. Um, I mean, to me, she absolutely needs to play the kid me. She's amazing. She yeah, is she's amazing. really yeah. great. So, so, so we'll get her. Um, we'll get her, we'll get the rock, and then who's in between? <laughs> who's the teenager? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I hope people read it before before that happens. <laughs> I hope so, so too. Um, and go out and get this book. I, I actually, uh, obviously, I got the advance. And for Christmas, I was like, somebody get me this book so I can lend it to people. Oh, that's nice. Um, and, I'm like, and, I'm like and, waving and, and, the hardcover he's, he's got it right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time, Nabil. And uh, again, this is a remarkable piece of work. You should be like super proud of this. Thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. Well, that was that was our that was our lovely, um, engaging, thoughtful chat with with Nabil. And again, I just can't, you know. Hopefully, I'd, I'd I'd like to imagine that our listeners are sort of like curled up in like a leather chair 
with some kind of hot beverage and maybe like a cable knit thing somewhere around you and um and you're sort of like basking in warmth and coziness and 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 that's what that conversation felt like uh to us at least i remember i remember spending the rest of the day on kind of a high and just thinking man that was that was such a great you know such a great way to spend a morning yeah and it, it was it was so nice to talk to him about stuff to sort of flesh out what was in the book uh you know one of the things i asked him intentionally was like if he was when we kicked it off if he was writing he knew he was writing the book basically not (laughs) for other people basically yeah and you know i was actually a little hesitant to share like my my sort of connection to it uh but it was important because that is really what hooked me into the the book because it was such a relatable experience even though our his and i experiences are completely different completely different. yeah i have to think that i mean i mean you and i have sort of non-traditional family experiences and situations um and they're and even within that there's kind of non-traditional and they're different from each other in different ways and they're different from nabil's um but there was a there's a kernel in there about that sort of figuring out of your place and that sense of belonging to your family that I think is kind of universal, you know, and, and it's whoever your family is, whatever it is, and, and, and whatever belonging means for you. It's, you know, life is sort of about figuring out how to how to get those things in balance and how to accept them and and be OK with them. And I think I think this this book is like a guided meditation through that. Yeah. Yeah, I think well, well said, sir. Well said, sir. We're going to be back with the the regular show next week. Um, thanks for listening, and hopefully, you go out and get this book, man. Yeah, do it. Yeah, do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. Bye. Let's go.